For me, I always ask myself, is this an entrepreneur that's special, talented, tenacious, and on a mission? Is this someone who I think can go and tell a great story to inspire potential employees, investors, partners? Is this someone that people are going to gravitate towards and in a competitive hiring environment, are they going to be able to build a world-class team? I don't need to see huge amount of traction. I need to answer the question of like, is there enough evidence or a unique insight that people want the product or service? I love founders that are incredibly focused on the customer. Is this someone who's just incredibly focused and obsessed with the customer and solving their problem? this team on a journey that's important, bold, difficult, and inspiring, and in some ways doesn't make me uncomfortable because it's hard. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski, and in this episode, I sit down with Steve Schlafman. He's a venture capitalist who works for Primary Ventures. And in this episode, we dive into venture capital, his background in the tech industry, as well as leadership, executive coaching, and meditation. This is a great episode, so stay tuned. Hey, Hacker. Sorry to interrupt this great podcast. It's David Smook, founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, and we're raising money for the first time, and we're doing it from the people. If you want to buy shares in Hacker Noon, visit HackerNoonShares.com. Help us make the best place for tech professionals to publish. Hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a bit about what you're working on. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm currently a partner at New York City-based Primary Venture Partners. And can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got into venture capital? Sure. I feel like I'm a little bit of an accidental VC because I don't feel like I ever planned to go down this route. In about 1985, I got my first Nintendo Entertainment System and was completely hooked on first on video games and then got into computers. And so by the time I got into college, it wasn't what I was going to do. I knew I was going into technology. I was fortunate to get a job at Microsoft. I spent the first five years of my career in Redmond, first really focused on corporate finance for the first few years. And then I spent the next two years, by the way, that was miserable in terms of like living in Excel and PowerPoint hell. And then I spent the next two years really focused on corporate development and corporate strategy. So effectively doing M&A and incubations within the Microsoft business division. So all their business applications. And that was amazing. I then felt a pull. I joined a startup here in New York called Massive, which was basically serving advertisements into video games. And there I ran analytics and what was known as network projections to really being on top of the health of the network. And that was an amazing role. And then as, as I was saying earlier, I had a really amazing opportunity to move home to Boston, where I'm from, to work for the Kraft family. They own and operate the New England Patriots. Their organization's called the Kraft Group, and they have five different businesses, paper and packaging, retail, private equity, of course, sports and entertainment. And when I was going through my interview, they just started sending me venture deals to start to look at. And that's really how I, I sort of dipped my toe. About half of my role there was venture 
venture focused. What was interesting is when I joined the craft group, I ultimately thought that I wanted to create carve out a career in sports. Mm-hmm. And my interest just continued to gravitate towards technology. And this was around the time that the iPhone was first coming out. And I'll never forget, I went to an event at MIT at the actually at the Cambridge High Galleria right off of MIT's campus at the Apple store right before they opened up the SDK. And it was like completely flooded. And I knew right then and there that I wanted to be, I was like, sports are great and all, but it's not really where my passions lie anymore. And I didn't want to create a career. And so a few years later, I ended up leaving to join a very early mobile startup called Sticky Bits, which was backed by Chris Aka. And I was one of the first employees there, effectively running most of the business side. It was, it was one of those really interesting situations where we launched, got some traction, but not enough to keep on going. We ended up pivoting into what was known as Turntable FM, which literally went viral overnight and ended up getting funding from Fred Wilson at USV and Matt Kohler at Benchmark and a bunch of others. I ended up leaving Turntable. I'm still very close with the two founders. They're very good friends of mine. But as I like to say, and I, I'm, I'm not joking, but all of our servers were named after dead music services. And so that was enough riding on the wall. And then I was very fortunate to get a role at uh, Lair Ventures. Ben Lair happened to tweet out that they were hiring their first employee. This was back in probably 2010. And I basically saw the tweet and I said, that seems like the perfect role for me based on my operating experience, my passion for startups, and basically emailed a handful of people that Ben happened to know. And two weeks later, I had the job offer. And so it was really right place, right time. When I was at Lair Ventures, I invested and helped source a number of really quality investments. While we were there, I made, or we as a firm, made over 50 investments in a range of startups. I was fortunate to work with companies like Smart Things, which sold to Samsung, as well as a company called Zipline that I'm also an angel investor now that's basically creating a drone delivery system in developing nations to deliver things like pharmaceuticals and blood. And that was really my apprentice phase in the venture business because I was just thrown into the deep end and that was just an amazing opportunity. And most recently, I spent the last four years at RRE Ventures where I was primarily focused on Series A investing, although I did a bunch of seed investing and my focus was pretty all over the board. For me, I I tend to focus almost exclusively on people, markets, and sort of the impact that that they create not in necessarily in a social impact although that's that's always a bonus but also technological impact for me what was great about RRE is that it was a pretty broad platform they're one of the pioneering venture capital funds in New York the the fund size is about 300 million and so i was able to invest everything from seed through series b and had just an amazing opportunity to work with founders such as Irving Fain at Bowery Farming and Andrew Frame at Citizen and Dan Turan at Managed by Q and a whole host of other really awesome entrepreneurs. Hey, hackers, do you have a timely tech story you want to get published? Maybe you recognize the way certain systems trend affecting our everyday lives or have a vision of the future for the blockchain technology. Maybe you're on the field of play and know what it takes to make a great team or how to remain agile in today's competitive tech-rich environment. 
Share your expertise with the community at large on Hacker Noon. Email us, stories at hackernoon.com, and a real human will review your submission. And could you kind of dive into the difference for listeners so that they understand, you know, the difference between seed, series A and series B? Like, what are the differences from your perspective? It's a, it's such a big difference. From an investor perspective, I think seed is the most purest form of investing venture because oftentimes it's a group of people with an idea, maybe a little bit of traction, but in a lot of ways, they're selling a dream. And I think that happens as well at the series A, but there's there tends to be a little bit more more traction. And so I really love being able to meet with someone and see a concept before it's launched and just really latch onto that. Um, whereas at the Series A, you tend to have a lot more data. And so for me, I, I tend to get paralyzed by having more data, which I know plenty of friends that prefer to invest with more data. I, I tend to be the opposite. I also think that in seed, valuations stay within a pretty consistent range, You know, anywhere from $4 million to $10 million plus for the pre-money or cap on the note. Whereas Series A, you can raise a $3 million Series A, a $15 million Series A, and that largely dictates where the pre-money valuation is set. So you have a lot more room for valuation. And so it's a much different ballgame. The other thing is, is that seed, it tends to be a little bit more collaborative, where investors and angels can band together to support a company. However, at the Series A stage, it's usually a winner-take-all situation. And so I find that at Seed, it's way more collaborative, which really suits my style. Um, And that's not to say that I struggled or didn't enjoy my time at RRE and investing at that stage. I ultimately decided after six plus years of investing, I really prefer Seed because I I tend to not like data um, and, and I tend to make my decisions solely based on market and founder and other what I call my, my human-centric criteria. Yeah, can you dive a little bit more into kind of your investment thesis and how you look at uh, you know investments? Because ultimately, what it comes down to, it's you're investing in people, not just businesses. Yeah, there's a lot of look, and and I don't by no means do I am I disrespecting any of my my colleagues in the venture business, but I think there are a lot of investors that say they invest in people. And then when push comes to shove, they'll say, ah, you're too early for us. We need to see more traction. And so for me, what I try to do is I've developed sort of a five set criteria and, and I try to stick to it. And after I meet every company, I, I have a little scorecard that I fill out that sort of checks number of boxes. But the first one is around uh, genuine leadership capability. And so for me, I always ask myself, is this an entrepreneur that's special, talented, tenacious, and on a mission? And I tend to ask myself, is this someone who I think can go and and tell a great story to to inspire potential employees, investors, partners, things like that? But is this someone that people are going to gravitate towards? And in a competitive hiring environment, are they going to be able to build a world-class team? The next is around market demand. I don't need to see huge amount of traction but i like to know that like i I need to answer the question of like is there enough evidence or a unique insight that people want the product or service right and so for me i like to always look for a little bit of market evidence uh, demand evidence 
or that there's some sort of unique insight. And, and so that's, that's the second criteria. The third is I love founders that are incredibly focused on the customer. And like, is this, is this someone who's just incredibly focused on, and obsessed with the customer and solving their problem? And so for me, I tend to love teams that are solving their own problem or at least really intimate with the one that they're, they're, going, they're, they're trying to crack. Then the fourth is around this notion of evoking emotions. Like I always think that the investing, the best investments are the ones where internally uh, I'm torn, where it's like, I love this, but I also hate it. Uh, I think I once heard Peter Thiel say that the best ideas are at the end. It's like a Venn diagram. It's sort of like at the intersection of a good idea and a bad idea. And so for me, the question I always ask myself is this, is this team on a journey that's important, bold, difficult, and inspiring? And in some ways, does it make me uncomfortable because it's hard? You know, like I think like Irving Fain at Bowery Farming, who's building, I think, honestly, one of the most impressive companies I've ever seen. Same with Keller at Zipline. Blake Scholl at, um, at Boom Aerospace, another founder I was fortunate enough to back. Um, like all of them are perfect examples of like you meet with them and you're like, wow, like this is what you're trying to build is not for the faint of heart. It's going to require a lot of capital, but if you're successful, it's really going to make a dent. And that's actually a good segue into the last piece of criteria. And for me, it's what I call human impact. And, and I always ask myself the question, is this a company that's capable of creating impact and being important globally? And so that doesn't necessarily even need to mean social impact. As I said earlier, that's always a plus. However, um, it, it needs to be either technologically important. Like I'm at the phase in my career where if I'm only making two to three investments a year because primary is a lead investor and, and we don't spray and pray, we're very concentrated when we make an investment in an entrepreneur, we're making a promise and we're making a commitment. And so if each of us have a portfolio of 20 plus companies, we're never going to be able to provide service and deliver on our promise. And so for me, I look across all those five dimensions. Now, when I sit down with a lot of founders and investors, they'll say, oh, well, what spaces are you interested in? And I know this is going to sound a little bit like a cop out, but I don't know, like, right? Like I'm looking at a company right now that's building a platform for memberships. Like I never would have thought about that space. Like, sure, I've thought about alternative funding mechanisms, but it's not like I, I've developed a thesis on the space, but I get on, introduced to an entrepreneur, he or she inspires me, and it really gets me excited about the space. And I might go into that space and, and dig deeper, but for me, I try not to think that I'm smart enough to predict where the world is going. Like I basically failed my SAT. So I try not to delude myself into thinking that I'm going to be smart enough to predict where the world is going. Do you, are you, are you noticing any trends or is there anything like, is there anything right now that you're, you are, that has kind of caught your eye at this moment? It's a good question. So I should, I should just quickly say that I left RRE Ventures about, eight, uh, about 12 months ago, and I spent nine months basically in an extended transition period. I joined Primary four months ago. So I've, uh, being out of the business for nine months um, took me a little bit of time to recalibrate. I feel like I'm starting to get up on the curve. I mean, 
honestly, I haven't seen anything specifically here in New York that I've been incredibly excited about. Um, there are a number of things that I've been thinking about, like, you know, we're seeing just so much and whether that means we're investing in it, it, it doesn't mean that we're investing in it, but micro mobility. So everything around lightweight vehicles under a hundred pounds and like, of course, bird and lime and and all and these other scooter businesses are sucking all of the air, but we're just starting to see so much more in micro mobility. Um, the other is, is alternative funding models. So, um, definitely seeing more, uh, continuing to see a lot of SaaS, vertical SaaS. So my time at Microsoft, um, my time at Microsoft, um, I always like to say, we, I, I spent a lot of time looking at productivity applications and I always like to, to look, find companies that are trying to replace paper, email, or Excel and core business <laughs> workflows. Um, and so for example, when I was at RRE, I was fortunate enough to work with a, a, a founder uh, by the name of Brandon Weber that started a company called Hightower that was basically redefining the workflows for commercial real estate. This is an exceptionally talented founder. And like, that's an example where he sort of felt these pains firsthand working in the industry. It also helped that he was a PM on the Excel team and transitioned out to be a real estate broker for three years. Um, but the point is, is that um, we're seeing a lot in and around uh, SaaS business applications. I tend not to spend much time in infrastructure um, in developer tools. It's just not my thing, but I tend to really look at um, consumer and enterprise marketplaces, and we're still seeing quite a bit of stuff there. Heyo, you got a great tech story you want to get published? Maybe something about bots taking over Twitter or how Bitcoin actually works? Or maybe you just have a story about how to build a great software or a great team? Get your expertise published on Hacker Noon. Email us stories at hackernoon.com, and a real human will review your submission. So now you're at Primary VC and it's, you know, you took some time off. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like you mentioned uh, before we were recording that uh, you were meditating a lot. And what was that experience like to kind of take some time off from everything and kind of recalibrate? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great question. For me, I, I took a step back and rather than trying to define what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, I... I, I really begin to take time to think about what I value and what and, and what kind of life do I want to design longer term. Um, and so for me, a big theme that came up in the in the first few months was around this notion of service and being able to serve others. And so uh, around January, I decided to enroll in, in, the, in an executive coaching program and to really focus on leadership coaching. And, and I was also, while I was going through my executive coaching certification, which I'm, I'm actually about to finish up, I also was gonna launch my own fund. Um, but after working by myself for almost six months, trying to get that off the ground, um, I was making really good progress, had some great people uh, supporting me, but I just hated working by myself and it just wasn't who I, who I wanted to be. And the idea of working alone for three plus years, just I'm, I'm an identical twin. 
who ha happens to live in the Bay Area. He's a senior designer at Netflix. Um, and I played, I played team sports growing up and I just, I feed off the energy of being part of an organization. And for me, I, it, I, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about something bigger. And so, um, it, it, there was a bummer because my, my idea was, is this idea of like combining a seed fund, um, that didn't behave like a traditional institutional investor but was more taking the role of an advisor, coach, and mentor, and then combining that with, um, with a leadership institute. And so my wife is a CEO of a company, and she, and I've seen it with her, I have more friends that are founders than, are, than, than I do investor friends, and I just, when I talk to them offline, it's all the same things keep on coming up. It's like people, people, and people and managing their own emotional state. And for me, that's a big reason why I decided to go into coaching and spent most of the time transitioning, just really diving into coaching as well as leadership development. Because I feel as if I can't be the best investor unless I'm showing up and I'm, and I'm not, only, um, not only like present, but also like really pragmatic and and helping them sort of work through the biggest problems which some are internal and and obviously others are related to uh managing and leading a team well and then also knowing all of these things it helps you identify these things in other people as well so now you can target and see okay here's an entrepreneur that like naturally or intuitively has these leadership skills and maybe needs a little bit of coaching here and a little bit of coaching there. Whereas, you know, most VCs probably aren't looking at it from a leadership standpoint. Um, you know, they're looking at ROI and financials and all that Excel data and spreadsheet stuff. Um, yeah, one so, of the questions, sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. One of the questions I love to ask founders, especially now is like, what kind of company do you want to build? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and and what are the values you want to instill in the organization? What are the, what's the kind of team that you want you want to create? And what kind of employer do you want to be? And how does this ultimately help you achieve your goals? Um, and and to me, like those things tend to reveal a lot about the person and the team. And that's not to say I solely make my decision based off of that. And and by and by all means, like. There, there are different kinds of investors. I was actually having this debate with, with a fairly well-known investor in New York, and he tends to, what, what he would say is they're fancy, like he goes after fancy founders that have maybe done two or three companies that are big, fancy names. And whereas my, my game is very different, um, I, I tend to gravitate towards founders that are completely unproven, yet have a tremendous amount of potential. And so for me, I try to find the, the, the diamonds in the rough and those that just have a, t a ton of potential. And so like, I think if you show up and you're meeting a first time founder or even a second time founder that might not have had success in their first endeavor, um, really being open-minded and rather than seeing, seeing them as a fixed state, um, I tend to look at potential and they're and like what i say is like leadership capacity and capacity to me means like that there's room for growth and and, and a willingness to learn and grow and and build and so on and so forth 
And sometimes the entrepreneur or CEO that's been knocked down and had a failure, uh, you know, they can learn from that. And, you know, they, they actually have a different perspective going into their next startup or their next endeavor, knowing that, you know, what they tried last time didn't work um, and doing what they can to avoid falling into those same mistakes. So there's, there's value in failing. No question. No question. And, and for me, I, I tend not to, to get caught up on that. Again, like I, I sort of view every founder that, that steps in, in the door that I'm able to interact with uh, as, you know, as a fret as with a fresh canvas, because I, I think it's dangerous to, to look backwards and that it's really important to, to, to look forwards. Yeah. And look at the forward trajectory of where this person and this company potentially. Exactly. Are. Yeah. So for me, it's like my job as a coach, it's it, I, the, the kind of coaching is all about transformational coaching. And so mm-hmm. my, I'm trained to show up into a relationship, believing that my clients and, and in the case of founders have a un, untapped potential and that possibilities are endless. And I know that might sound a little woo woo, but for me, the way that that shows up is rather than thinking and this, the old Steve might've seen like, okay, well this person's deficient here and here, as opposed to now, the way I show up is saying like, okay, well, like I actually believe that this person um, has the resources to accomplish whatever it is that they do, whether they're going to do it themselves, like obviously not. Um, but how do I help them get to where they want to go? And if there's anything in the way, like how do we problem solve? And so rather than trying to point fingers or be so judgmental that they feel that I'm not being a good partner, it's like, how do I show up and say like, look, at the end of the day, we want the same thing. I want to see you succeed and I can't be of service to you unless um, you're coming to me with some of the things that are going on. And I don't, I don't pretend my coaches don't, aren't supposed to give advice, right? My job as a coach is just to ask a lot of questions and be a sounding board such that the client or in the case of the founder that they can come up with the, 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 um, the answer themselves. Like I had an amazing session. One of my favorite companies in the primary portfolio is a company called Alma, which is redefining the uh, the mental health care practice, and it's a it's an entirely new model around uh, mental health. They just actually launched this week in New York, and I was meet the the founder uh, Harry Ritter, who's who's amazing. He called me and said, "Schlaff, I'd like you to come over. I want to do a whiteboard session with you around pricing." And so I went over the following week, and we we we. We just like threw stuff on the wall for, for an hour. And honestly, I wasn't even really providing much advice. I was just asking him a bunch of questions, uh, clarifying how he got to where he was. And by the end of it, he's like, I, I came up with the answer. And honestly, I didn't do anything. But he was so grateful that I was there to hold space and just ask a bunch of questions and not challenge him and, in a negative way. But like, mm-hmm. just just be there and be a sounding board and share some perspective. And the old Steve, probably my ego would have been hit because Harry came up with the answer and I didn't really do much. 
But now that I've gone through the coaching, I actually show up saying I did my job, right? Like I was there and Harry, Harry inherently had all the tools that he needed to come to the answer. He just needed to get out of, you know, his, his daily routine and jump into a conference room and do some whiteboarding and ultimately came up with the, the answer himself. So again, like as an investor, I tend to believe that um, executives and leaders have the answers. They're way closer to it than I am. So who am I to think that I'm going to have all that? I mean, I, I, sure, I have almost 20 years of business experience, but um, when you're living and breathing an idea and it's you're 20, 24 seven on, I, I, I tend to believe that the founder is going to have the right answer. Hey, Hacker, sorry to interrupt this great podcast. It's David Smook, founder and CEO of Hacker Noon, and we're raising money for the first time, and we're doing it from the people. If you want to buy shares in Hacker Noon, visit HackerNoonShares.com. Help us make the best place for tech professionals to publish. And part of leadership is actually getting out of your own way. Um, and it's about, you know, as you said, you know, putting your ego aside and focusing on what you, what you need to be able to solve the problem rather than making it personal. Uh, and that's yeah, so hard for some people to so emotionally disconnect from that and allow that perspective to be able to actually, you know, allow that problem to, uh, you know, come to a resolution. And sometimes for me personally, like sometimes I have to go do something else. I have to go take my dog for a walk. I have to go take a shower. I have to go do something. And then it's like the moment when I stop trying to solve the problem, the answer just like shows up. Well, that's the default mode network in your brain at, at, at work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's, there, there's, and, and I hate to use the sports, the sports reference, but Bill Belichick, who's arguably the most successful NFL coach the last 40 years, um, you know, his, his, his success speaks for himself, speaks for itself. But he has a saying that being a great teammate is when you put the interests of the organization in front of your own. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I was really thrilled to join Primary. We're a relatively new fund. There's big brands out there in the venture landscape, but everyone around the table wants to build a firm that serves and supports entrepreneurs in a very authentic and thoughtful way. Um, and, and that, um, for us, it's about service. And so um, it, it's just the point that I'm getting at is that we just are, it's a great place and that everyone just wants to build an organization that's great. And if someone shows up, whether they're senior or junior with an idea on how to improve the experience with founders, what we call the founder journey, then we're all ears because we, we just, we're, we're in it for the right reasons. So I've got to ask, because this is the Hacker Noon podcast, what is some time in your life that you've hacked something? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And probably in some ways, it's a little bit of a, a cop-out. But mm -hmm. um, for me, I think hacking my mind and my body is, is what comes to mind first. Um, I learned meditation about four and a half years ago. And for me, meditation was the first time I was able to hack my brain. And from there, I learned how to meditate and I developed a daily practice, primarily TM. And um, so I 
Can you explain at 8 p.m.? It's transcendental meditation. Yeah, transcendental meditation, which is primarily mantra based. And so the prescription is twice a, twice a day, 20 minutes. So in the morning when you get up and sometime in the afternoon. And the whole concept is to effectively repeat a word that's given to you by a teacher. It tends to be, in, I believe, in Sanskrit. And you repeat it over and over and over and over again. And by doing that, you're dropping your brain into a state of consciousness that feels like you're almost transcending reality. And if you haven't done it before, it's hard to grok what I'm saying, but it's, I mean, it's incredibly powerful. There's tons of business leaders and, and other uh, professionals that have just gained so much from it. And so I started uh, practicing TM twice a day and about nine months later, I decided to actually quit all drugs and alcohol um, I probably smoked uh, marijuana as a, as, a, as a means to self-medicate um, for, for a very long time, almost 20 years. And so then I ended up completely removing that from my life and then, you know, lost close to 15 pounds, started eating less meat. And so that just learning how to meditate mm -hmm. then ultimately just impacted every phase of my life where... Now, um, you know, I, I have a strong daily meditation practice. I eat well. I, I, I just, it, it sets the tone. And for me, it's just, it's, it's radically transformed my life. I'm, I'm way more effective at work, way more self-aware, way more thoughtful, um, can self-manage myself. Look, I'm not perfect. Um, my twin brother makes fun of me at times for sometimes losing my temper with him. I think he's the only person in the world that can get me to lose my temper at this point. Um, <laughs> but the point is, is that that completely hacked my brain and mm -hmm. changed my life in so many ways. Yeah. I've had similar experiences with meditation. It's fascinating because you and I both kind of started exploring this around the same time. I started about four and a half years ago as well. Um, so it, it, it just creates new pathways in the brain. I mean, that's like the simplest way to explain it. And like, when you're using transcendental meditation, you're using mantras, what you're doing is you're kind of like creating an anchor that creates a pathway that allows you to access those meditative states. It's like, it's not that complicated. It's, you know, if you really think about it, because, you know, we live in this world now where everything's notifying us and we're getting emails and phone calls and people are trying to get our attention on LinkedIn and Facebook and like all these social platforms and like all this technology is just like <laughs> distracted us. It's, you know, it's, it stopped us from being able to be present and really have that self-awareness to be able to move forward. Uh, and it's just so important to be able to create that counterbalance. It is. And, and honestly, like I, I know a lot of people that will say, how do you do it? I can't sit still. How do you make the time? I can never find the 20 minutes twice a day. And I'll tell you what, like this afternoon, right before I jumped on this, this call, I decided to sit down for 15 minutes because I've literally been going back to back to back all day from 8 a.m. And I haven't really given myself any time to pause. And just by doing that was like I completely re reset my body and it gave me a whole new rush of energy where I could show up to this call and actually be way more aware. And so, but, but going back to people that say that they can't do it, 
um, they'll say like, my mind is full of, of thoughts and feel like I'm like, my mind is racing. And it's like, well, that's what the mind does. My, my mind races too. Um, and so it's, you can't turn it off. (laughs) You can't turn, exactly. You can't turn it off. And it's scary because you're forced to actually be with yourself and in some ways acknowledge the thoughts and the feelings that you're having. But with that, you end up learning so much. And that's what I ultimately believe leads to lasting change. Yeah. And I know for me, part of it was just learning how to separate my emotions from the thoughts that I was having. Mm. So like there were many times when I was younger, especially in my twenties where like, you know, I'd have a thought and I'd be like, why the hell did I just think that? And literally get mad at myself or start panicking because it's like, why would I think something like that? Whereas now I'm just like, okay, that was, that was a thought next and move on, you know, like no emotional attachment to it, no reaction to it. It's just like, all right, let's see what happens next. Um, well, it's, it's so funny you bring that up. The other day I was meditating and I had a thought about my partner, Brad, who's, who's just an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And it was like a negative thought and just based on a process that we're running. And I said, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't even true. <laughs> like what? And I, I A lot of the time up, it's not. Yeah, and I had to laugh it off and be like, and then at the end, I was like, the end of the meditation, I was like, gave gratitude for him, and I was like, yeah, this 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 thought isn't even real. Like your 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 mind is making it up, and so for me, I found that meditation was always one of those things that gave you just a little inch of room to be able to just it gives you just enough space to evaluate the validity of your thoughts. Yeah. I, for me, it was just, you know, discovering that I was caught up in my own bullshit, uh, you know. It's a, it's like, a better way to say it. <laughs> you put it more elegantly. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, I, I definitely see its advantages as a tool to be able to help people, to be able to create that perspective and that self-awareness. And I know it's helped me a lot. Uh, and it, it's just it's interesting that you brought this up as your hack because like I said, we both kind of started meditating and started a daily practice around the same time. I I mean, it it led me to selling my startup and just completely following a different path in my life. And it's had its ups and downs, but you know, I wouldn't really change anything. Yeah. And again, it's, I I know like, like us, so many people where once they started, it's led to, I mean, I wouldn't have become a coach. I wouldn't have decided to leave RRE. I, I wouldn't have made a lot of the decisions that I've made in the last four years um, if, I, if I hadn't gone down this, this path. I might not be talking to you right now. We might not be doing this podcast if I didn't start meditating. So yeah. uh, getting back into like content creation and, and media, I mean, for me, this is value creation. The conversation we're having right now, we're going to share this hopefully with thousands of people um, so that they can learn from your experiences, my experiences, and create value for people. And you know, at the end of the day, this show almost is a hack itself because it allows me to do that for you know potentially thousands of people without necessarily having to always be in the same room with them. Uh, you know, they can go back to these recordings and get this value. That's so, amazing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited about the podcast. Yeah, well, you know, I've got to ask, so what are your final thoughts uh, before we wrap up here? 
Yeah, I, I, I guess I would just uh, say to, to those in the audience, and I guess this is unrelated to, to startups, but more about our, our personal journeys that we're on is that, you know, if you're struggling with something or you want to take action, but you, you don't know the first step, I would just say, listen to yourself and your intuition um, and, and really follow that. And I think at the end of the day, when we tune in to like what we truly value in life and what our needs are, like I, I like to say that needs are, or emotions are basically uh, viewpoints into what we need and what we value and that needs tend to be short term values tend to be longer term and more core to who we are and that if you spend the time to go inward and figure out what your needs and values are um, it starts to be incredibly illuminating and and I and I truly believe that you'll be able to whether it's launch a new company make a career change um, make difficult decisions around how you manage your team because um, there's there's something in the way. Um, I have no doubt that you'll be able to to accomplish whatever whatever you, you wherever you want to go. Awesome. And where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on Twitter primarily. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same handle at Schlaff. So it's at S C H L A F. Um, and everybody can, anybody can email me at steve at primary.vc. Awesome. And you've got, you know, pretty large social media following for venture capitalists. Uh, you know, just kind of final question here. So what's kind of led you to taking more of a, a public facing approach to venture capital? Um, it's interesting because I, I joined Twitter somewhere around 2007 and I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. And for me, I, I tend not to share, well, I, I share a mix of business and personal and, and I would say even leadership and coaching kind of content. And, and there's a lot of people that will reach out and ask me to post on their behalf. I tend not to over market things that are going on in the portfolio and, and things like that. To me, I, I try to share inspirational and useful content that, that people can latch on to and run with. Although lately I've been trying to, to, to add more of the things that I'm observing. So like, for example, yesterday, um, I just had this, this realization and it's not like this is groundbreaking, but I, I've just noticed a ton of companies that are either partially or fully distributed, particularly at the seed stage. And I feel like way more now than ever before. Um, and so I, I shared that observation and, you know, there's a lot of people that had good and bad things to say about that trend. So there are times where I'll just, I'll just go on the, on the cuff and share what I'm, what I'm seeing and out there in the field. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been an amazing interview. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. And best of luck to you and, and Hacker Noon. Um, I'm excited for you guys. Thanks. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.